Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about free press and Google's monopoly. Fred Flights, president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy, is going to join me to talk about Biden's China diplomatic disaster in Alaska and election integrity epiphany. And my very fine friends, you don't want to miss this show. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thanks for joining me on America Can We Talk. That's Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. Hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Two quick things made me feel a little bit good about the idea that the First Amendment protection in this country just might turn a corner. We might begin to see better protection for the expression of free speech and more recognition of the power and danger to the American society of having the First Amendment freedom of speech right, actual right, be limited in a variety of ways in our country. Uh, To start with, uh, there was a federal judge. Now, granted, what he wrote was in a dissent. But if, well, so he, you know, he didn't win the case. The majority side uh, ruled otherwise. But a federal judge stated in a, um, this is Lawrence Silberman of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And even though they're all supposed to be kind of equal, the truth is the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, that whole circuit is considered to be kind of premier among the, the higher, more respected circuits, said in a dissent, essentially, that we have one party control of the press and of the media, and that is a threat to viable democracy. This is, again, just Judge Lawrence Silberman, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and he went on to talk about the idea it may be time for the Supreme Court or the court system to revisit New York Times versus Sullivan, which is basically, which is a federal, a Supreme Court decision, which has shaped the protection given to uh, the press in this country almost uh, free of any liability or responsibility for the things they do. And he raised, though, in this case, in his dissent in this case, the idea uh, that the orientation of, he mentioned specifically, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, even the news section of the Wall Street Journal, which is darn right, very perceptive, the news section of the Wall Street Journal has also gone all left. He also talked about the same leftist orientation controls the Associated Press, most large papers in the country, including LA Times, Miami Herald, Boston Globe, nearly all television, network, cable, in this judge's words, is a Democratic Party trumpet. This does not have the power of precedent. This is a minority opinion, uh, the dissenting opinion. But the idea that a judge on this court of that stature was willing to go into great detail pointing out we essentially have a press in this country lockstep with the Democrat Party is truly an affront, is a danger to the freedom of the press, the freedom of, of speech. He also went on to directly address Silicon Valley, having enormous influence over the distribution of news. And similarly, as he's saying, similarly, Silicon Valley filters news delivery in ways favorable to the Democrat Party. Now, I don't think anything's going to come of this tomorrow, but for many years, the idea of a federal court 
actually openly saying what millions of Americans have said for a long time, that we don't really have free press, we don't really have freedom of speech, when you have the monolithic presence of the, as I call them, the Democrat media mob, but the overwhelming media presence in our country takes the side of the Democrat Party to the exclusion of presenting other views, both in the way they characterize issues, the adjectives they use to describe people and events and things in our history, and the stories they choose to cover. All of that, that's my commentary, all of that has gotten us to the point where it's very difficult for a citizen who's actually genuinely concerned about getting the news, they, are, they have a very difficult time finding it. Unless, of course, they listen to America Can We Talk. He didn't put that as an opinion, but he probably should have. So that was one great bit of news about the First Amendment. And the other one I wanted to relate to in this first five has to do with some documents that were leaked to uh, Politico uh, that relate to uh, the Obama-era presidency, when President uh, Obama was in office, so eight years ago, 2013, there was a case in which the Federal Trade Commission uh, had the opportunity to more closely review Google. The gist of these leaked documents is that as this case was being considered, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, had on the one hand antitrust lawyers so the Federal Trade Commission, the federal agency, looking at Google. On the one hand, the lawyers for FTC were saying, you know, uh, we think that Google is actually breaking the law. This had to do with a review of whether or not Google had monopoly power. So the, um, the lawyers were saying, hey, you know, uh, at the FTC saying, yeah, actually, Google seems to be breaking the law. They are banishing potential competitors with a series of exclusionary contracts on mobile phones. So the lawyers in the FCC saying they got a big problem about Google violating the monopoly laws. But unfortunately, the economists, uh, the FTC also has people who are economists in making the assessment of whether or not there is a monopoly presence. The economists at the FTC said, well, you know, actually, if you break it down this way and look at this kind of numbers and you look at the influence of this and that, they kind of muffled the, uh, the clarity that was being brought to the case by the assessment of the FTC uh, by the lawyers. So the economists got in the middle of it, managed to spew out a bunch of numbers Numbers that convinced the, that uh, the court to say, man, maybe we're okay here. The other interesting aspect, though, was that the Obama administration, you know, he's in office at this time, President Obama is in office at this time, often a circular door, rotating door between the, um, the Obama administration and the Google executives. So he's got Google-friendly people around him, part of the whole uh, assessment of the FTC situation. And this article is making the point, you know, there really was an opportunity then for the Obama administration to get tough, to really crack down on Google, which now, if you don't already know it, pretty much controls what you know. It controls what most Americans know. If you get your news by Googling, hey, what happened on the border yesterday? Or whatever the question is, you will get the answer that left-wing America wants you to have because Google directs you to that. This case in 2013 was an opportunity that the FTC had to look at Google more closely and say, you know, this could be problematic here. They didn't do it then. New discussion about maybe this should have been revisited. Now the documents being leaked, recognizing that the uh, economists were given undue uh, weight in their assessment of the FTC monopoly question, lawyers not given enough. And when you, when you uh, involve the um, Obama administration, 
rotating door with the Google executives, it could make somebody think, you know, maybe it's time to revisit, revisit this question. I want to cover these stories in today's first five because there could be no more important issue. There are many important issues facing America, but the absolute ability for Americans to be able to get access to information, to know that it's accurate, to have the courts strongly reconsider whether or not to permit Google and other massive social media companies, just gigantic tech sector companies, to pretty much control what everyone knows and everyone thinks. There's an opportunity there uh, for, uh, for the current administration, uh, not the Biden administration want to, but current people in power to re-examine this and consider whether or not you're going to want to uh, consider again whether or not the monopoly law should apply, should be re-examined. Um, and and I'm, I'm just thrilled these documents were leaked. Not sure why Politico let them out of their hands, but they did. But I think on balance, it's a great piece of information to understand that we had a chance to rein in Google. And then we now we look at the reason that they didn't rein them in was pretty poor reasoning uh, at that time. So maybe, just maybe, we can get Google looked at again by the federal government in terms of monopoly. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. I mentioned at the start of the show, we have a guest joining us. Uh, he's joining us on screen here in just a moment. Uh, this is Fred Flights, and he is president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. I've mentioned the organization on my show many times because they employ just really knowledgeable experts, people who are actually experts in the field of uh, all sorts of things in any way related to America's national security. Um, he served in 2018 as the deputy assistant to the president and to the chief of staff of the national as and chief of staff to the National Security Council. He previously held national security jobs within the CIA, the DIA, the Department of State, and the House, and he was also on the House Intelligence Committee staff. This is Fred Fleiss, president of Center for Security Policy, and hello there, Fred. Hey, Debbie, good to be here. Good to see you, sir. Okay, well, I'm so glad you happen to be available today uh, because a lot of people were talking over the weekend um, about, or I guess it was yesterday, about this meeting, uh, one of the first forays into foreign policy that our new administration had. They had their representatives meeting with representatives of China in Alaska. A lot of people heard about kind of the unloading by Chinese senior officials and their critique of America um, and pretty, pretty disrespectful. But you had something you wrote about. I want to add, to start with what you wrote, and then talk about much of the commentary about it. But things kind of went south, went a little bit sour in this very first meeting between America's diplomats and China's under President Biden. So tell us what happened. What happened first of all at the beginning of the meeting? And why did it get so off base? Yeah, let's talk about exactly what happened here. Secretary of State Blinken and National Security Advisor Sullivan thought it was a good idea before they began talks with their Chinese counterparts in Alaska to hold a joint press conference and to open their remarks by criticizing the Chinese government and these officials in front of the cameras, in front of these officials. And I think they probably did that because of all the criticism Joe Biden has received for possibly being compromised by China, for being weak on China. This was just virtue signaling. Let's let's be clear about it. It also is not the way you conduct diplomacy. Each side was supposed to have two minutes. They would normally give perfunctory remarks, and then the tough talk would be done in private. We insulted China before the talks began. I think what they said was was legitimate, with, with, although they left out something important, which I'll get to in a minute. But this is not how one conducts diplomacy. 
we're trying to get the Chinese to listen to us, to negotiate with us, and to insult them before the cameras, before the talks began, was perhaps the most amateurish move these two characters could have made. But let me add something else, Debbie. Despite this list of, of accusations about Hong Kong and the Uyghur Muslims and economic uh, warfare against the U.S., they're all legitimate. There was not one word by Blinken or Sullivan about China's criminal negligence that caused the coronavirus to become a pandemic. Nothing. Nothing about accountability. Nothing <clears throat> about the Beijing government's responsibility. I got to tell you, th these comments are amateurs, and frankly, they were a little weird. <laughs> A little weird. That's one way to say it. I was going to say uh, this. I don't know if I've ever said in the show the name of the uh, now Secretary of State confirmed by the Senate under President Biden. And his name is Antony, and I'm not mispronouncing it. It's A-N-T-O-N-Y. But Antony, yeah, Blinken. And I was going to tell you, I looked him up. You know, he actually, he has worked in the state. I mean, I got to wondering, because it sounds so amateurish. He's worked in the State Department, worked in the Clinton White House, on the staff of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So that was my first question to you. And he was actually Biden's national security advisor after Obama's election. So the question is, did this guy tr not know any better? Or did he, Blinken, or did he figure, as you just said, that was one of my next question was, was this just to try to s signal to America, hey, don't you think the Biden people are weak on China? Listen how tough I can be. What, what was it? What made him do this, do you think? Blinken is a second or third stringer at best. Uh, where are the great men and women like Condoleezza Rice or John Foster Dulles, Jim Baker, to take a significant role like this? When Blinken goes abroad, foreign leaders are saying, who's this guy? We really needed someone with gravitas, someone who foreign leaders would respect. It's just too bad that Joe Lieberman or, or, or Senator Coons from Delaware or maybe Jane Harmon, I don't agree with these folks, but they're well known. They're men and women of substance. This is the kind of amateur mistake you get from someone who spent his whole career as an aide to, to, to uh, the uh, Obama administration, to Joe Biden. It's true Blinken had a top position at the State Department at the end of the Obama administration, but I don't think he learned much when he was in that job. Okay, so they got off on a wrong foot with China. Um, and then actually the next thing that occurred in this news conference was, uh, this was, they had agreed on timing. And so you had the opening remarks by Blinken and Sullivan, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. And then the Chinese, their counterparts, the Chinese uh, spokesman, and the gentleman who did most of the speaking was Foreign Minister, um, I believe, uh, Party Foreign Affairs Chief, and I'm sure you can tell me the correct pronunciation, Yang Ji Chai. But that gentleman lit in to America, and he talked about, I mean, they went off on all sorts of things about America in response to what had just been said to them by Blinken and Sullivan. They went off saying things about uh, America has its own problems with race relations, look at Black Lives Matter, I mean, taunting white supremacy in America. Uh, you know, just they really dug in on issues in America that are very sensitive right now. So I want to ask you, um, Fred, did, what did you take from that, from the way the Chinese officials responded? Was that a signal? Were they just angry and ready to spout or they or, or, I mean, angry and just responding or did they come loaded for bear ready to talk about all those kind of things? I think they were angry and they were surprised that the United States in its first diplomatic encounter with the Chinese would pull something like this in front of the cameras. This was typical Chinese propaganda against the United States. Some people have made a lot of it. I wasn't surprised. 
but basically they're basically saying you're going to you're going to disrespect us in your first meeting and and what was even more stunning debbie is that blinken and sullivan were clueless after this happened they looked like a deer in the headlight they they couldn't imagine that the chinese would follow up on their insults with their own insults and and that's what happened and the chinese were better at it we they they basically took the secretary of state and the national security advisor and dressed them down in front of the international press it was quite humiliating it was humiliating and you know the other thing you you raise a good point what did i mean i know you're i'm not asking you to you know conjecture what was in their heads at the time but i can't imagine what did blinken and Sullivan think would happen in response to very public comments the attacks that they gave in front of cameras at the very beginning of the summit it's like they they had to expect china was going to respond but yet you say they look like they're deer in the headlights that they couldn't figure out where to go i mean they i wonder if they thought the chinese would just sit there in stunned silence any clue on that that's right. I could have told them this would happen. What's the point of having discussions if you're just going to insult the other guy when they begin? And I heard in the closed meetings, the discussions were worse. The Chinese dressed our, our representatives down again. I don't want to give the Chinese a pass in their behavior. It's fine to criticize them in, in speeches. I mean, President Trump was pretty tough on China in his speeches. But, you know, when Trump met with President Xi, when he met with North Korean Kim, he didn't insult them personally in front of the news media. The tough talk was behind doors. That's how you engage in negotiations. That's called the art of the deal. Donald Trump understood that. How these two characters did not, I don't know. You know, actually, I was reading something, someone who was, I guess, maybe defending both sides, but saying that for many people, these diplomatic meetings, I do want to get the substance of China, but these diplomatic meetings are sometimes viewed by both countries as a, a an effort or a uh, that their goal in part is to signal to their own people, to their own leaders. Uh, and especially in the case of China, one of the gentlemen who was involved really wants to move up. Uh, within Chinese government, and for, if he's sounding really tough and anti-American, he's maybe saying those things because he's hoping back home Xi Jinping is going to view him favorably. Do, do you have any sense about that? Uh, this is just not the way diplomacy yeah. is supposed to operate. We cause the Chinese loss of face, which you simply don't do uh, to, 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 to Chinese people, to, to, to people of Asia. It's, it's a big deal to them. We gave them an opportunity. They had no choice but to respond fiercely and to, to attack us also. What you said about one of these guys trying to move up, that, that might be true. But the issue here is we violated some pretty important principles for engaging in uh, top-level negotiations. We, set, uh, we started them off badly, and I think the talks went downhill from there. And you know, Fred, I'm actually remembering while you're talking, I think you came on the show one time right after President Trump had engaged with a North Korean leader and had made some public facing comment of a friendly sort, uh, acted in a friendly manner toward the North Korean leader. And the press was pouncing on President Trump saying, you know, how could you act so friendly to such a mean and cruel dictator? But tr it, it's what you're saying because Trump realized the, the tough talk, the, the hard issues that must be, you know, bring out issues happens behind the scenes. So what Trump was doing back then, I don't know if you recall this, I think you're on the show talking about, it. of course, that's what you have to do to make any headway in having a meaningful meeting. Is that accurate? Oh, I think Trump said that he and Kim had love for each other. Yes. He called him his best friend. Well, look, that's what you do when you're when you're involved in, in horse trading or the type of negotiations that Mr. Trump did in, in New York real estate. 
You do this to get the other guy to the negotiating table, to make compromises in private where it counts. You don't insult them before the talks begin. They're never going to negotiate at that rate. Okay, also, I want to know your take on this. I actually found this, it's a really odd thing. What the Chinese people at the meeting were saying back to the uh, Biden team, they were taunting America about white supremacism, systemic racism. I mean, they were really using our cultural um, battles, internal battles, as attacks on America. And I think it's hard for the Biden administration to respond because the Biden team has more or less embraced that leftist ideology, that leftist, yeah, we are a nation of white supremacists with systemic racism. Doesn't it make it harder for Biden's team to respond to what the Chinese are saying? Because the Chinese are kind of saying what the Biden team has already bought into about America. You know, some people might be surprised the Chinese did that because there's a perception that Biden is more pro-China and weaker on China. But what they don't recognize is that Enemy, I don't want to call China an enemy. I'm going to call them an adversary. Maybe they're an enemy. Iran is an enemy. Our adversaries and enemies, they hate the United States no matter who the president is, no matter what party the president is from. And I, maybe that's why the Biden team were surprised that, that the Chinese would say this, because they, they knew the Chinese, didn't, Chinese government didn't like Donald Trump. Maybe they thought they were so happy that Joe Biden was going to be president that the Biden team could get a, a few swats in before the talks began uh, for the interna international press to hear so they could get stories run that uh, Biden's tough on China. Do you read from this story, at least, this, at least this first interaction, do you read anything into it along the lines of whether or not China views the American presidency, the new presidency as contrasted with the Trump administration, views them as weaker? That, uh, do you read that in, into that at all? I think they probably do, but it's not unusual for America's adversaries to test new presidents. So that's going on also. But with such a weak approach and with various statements by the president that make him look weak, his refusal to do press conferences, yeah. how he's appeared incoherent at some of his press conferences. Debbie, the world is watching this. And you know, a, a weak United States is very dangerous for global stability. Oh, it really is. I noticed that the evening before this meeting in Alaska, the Chinese ambassador to the U.S., um, and I believe his name is Kui Chiangkai, needled, he actually said to the press, um, will the U.S. be a responsible stakeholder in global affairs? He's jabbing at America, and the night before this meeting, and he, the language of his uh, query is really alluding back to what America has said about China, because we've been saying, uh, is China going to be a responsible stakeholder in global affairs? I just took that as a, maybe that's just kind of politics as usual, but it seemed like China needling the Biden administration, letting him know, you know, we're watching you uh, kind of thing. Did you, what, what do you think about that comment that was made? I think it shows weakness. Donald Trump was successful because of peace through strength. They knew he was prepared to maybe not take military action if he didn't have to, but he put on very strong sanctions. He was prepared to confront China, and he insulted China when they did things they shouldn't be doing. Remember the tweets he sent about China cheating on sanctions against North Korea. The Chinese government really didn't like that, and they wanted Trump out of there because he was a strong and decisive president, and they know Biden is not, and they know Biden has other interests. He's more interested. You know, there was a a, a national security strategy the Biden administration put out recently. China was the number eight priority. Climate change was higher. The Chinese government oh. sees this. They're quite happy about the strategy. 
I, I find that I actually was not familiar with that particular item, but that was my kind of my next line of questions was, there are people uh, in the punditry world saying that part of the reason China feels emboldened because they don't sense any clear, strong policy coming from the Biden team about the way they're going to deal with China. They, they sense mixed signals, they sense weakness, and to them, as you're saying, it's great news if you're China because you're no longer in the crosshairs of Donald Trump. You're number eight. So what does that cause China to do? Like, what does China do in reaction to recognizing that they're only the number eight priority for America's foreign policy? They see a president who's not decisive. For example, supposedly the Biden administration went along with the declaration of the Uyghurs, the Muslim Uyghurs, as being subjected to genocide by the Chinese government. That was done by the Trump administration the very uh, just before they left office. Well, if that's the case, the U.S. has to stop normal business until the Chinese ceases behavior and the people responsible are held accountable. If we're just going to wipe it under the rug or treat it like it's just one of many issues and not as important as climate change, the Chinese know they'll be in the driver's seat. And I think these comments by Chinese officials and the way they reacted in Alaska shows that they sense an opportunity from a weak and indecisive president, and uh, they're going to run with it. Amen to that. I'm back to the comments made. I meant to ask you about this one. The comments made by the Chinese officials in this, in response to the opening um, remarks that didn't go over well. There was a, one individual uh, um, who made the comment in the, in the meeting. Uh, they were saying they have, they, there was a strong smell of gunpowder. That was one of the words uh, that Beijing used. And, and so are you familiar with that expression? Do you know why they might have said that? I heard that, Debbie. I'm not sure what that means. Okay. Me neither. I, I thought, you know, is it is it a warning? You know, there might be gunpowder. Is it a... I, I, yeah, okay. I, I thought you might... I thought it might have some deep meaning I didn't realize. Okay. So if you're... Um, if they... If you were helping the Biden team come up with a message toward China to try to get things back on track after this first unfortunate debacle of a conference. I mean, is it, is it is what the Biden team needs to do to really step up with firm foreign policy to China to say, look, here's what we're gonna do about trade. Don't they have to be forceful on every issue to get back in the driver's seat with China? What do they have to do? Well, I think the first thing Biden should do is to fire Sullivan and Blinken and hire men and women of stature for these top national security jobs. Because these, these two are not serious. They're, they're not giving the right advice to Biden. They're not standing up to foreign leaders. They're not representing us well abroad. If, if the president isn't going to do that, I think that the, the national security team really has to get together and come up with some strong principles in which we will deal with other nations and come up with a real set of priorities. It puts China's number one, not number eight. One thing the Biden team could do would be to send their team of advisors related to China to some of the programs that the Center for Security Policy puts That's on. That's right. <laughs> I, I was going to say, you guys do a lot about China. Uh, clear and present danger, danger China was one of them. I mean, I, I'm very, this is obviously I'm segueing to let you tell your organization a little bit, but uh, Center for Security Policy based in Washington, D.C., does so much good for the world and for people who care about policies on all sorts of national security issues. So uh, actually, do you want to tell a little bit about um, the, the one you have related to China, Clear and Present Danger China? We, 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 have, a, we, we have a program called the Shadow National Security Council uh, Project, which is trying to hold the Biden administration accountable in national security, 
uh, to document what it is doing and to pro promote this program, we're actually hiring some former Trump staffers. We just hired former Ambassador Peter Hoekstra, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Oh. Debbie, I want to get him on your show. He's such a great him. guest. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm doing this not just to make use of their talent, but Debbie, the Republican Party has a terrible record taking care of our own after Republican presidency ends. So I've hired some of these people and I'm trying to raise funds to hire some more so we can protect this conservative talent for the next Republican president. That is great. That sounds great. There was another, I saw a new hire, your website, by the way. Um, in fact, I got this article, you're off of there. Centerforsecuritypolicy.org is where this article that you wrote called A Diplomatic Disaster in Alaska. I mean, I think it was also on, on the on National Spectator, American Spectator site. But this piece is really good explaining, as you did just now, what exactly was so wrong, unfortunate, misguided about the way America started this first meeting with China? Very, very, very good explanation. But your website's full of great information on all sorts of topics that touch on national security. Um, and I love that you're hiring new people uh, because you're right. We have people after the, uh, the GOP team leaves town, people kind of looking for a place to be. So I'm glad you hired Pete Hoekstra. And, and, and the left is trying to stop them from getting jobs. Let's not keep that. Let, let's make sure we, they're trying to keep them out of academia. They're trying to keep them off corporate boards. We need to take care of our people. We can't let these patriots who kept our nation safe under Donald Trump be canceled. I love that. So uh, all my happy listeners, you're more than, if you go to this website, you'll be able to see among other things, information. Um, you can sign up for the weekly, or, I mean the daily newsletter, which is just full of stories uh, and just great information, solid information, real experts, actual knowledge, no, not a, not um, hyperbolic or not. I mean, it's not, it's just very substantive. I love it. Um, right. Very, very helpful. Um, and then you can also donate on your website. You can make a donation to support Center for Security Policy, which survives on donations by patriots, right? We're, we're a 5013C on our website, securefreedom.org. There's a bright red donate button and you can make an instant credit card donation and you can contribute anonymously if you're worried that the left may come after you. <laughs> Yes, which could be a good worry. Actually, one last topic, I'll let you go. You mentioned something I, I had, I think back at the time the Trump administration was winding down, or I don't know what point it was, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others, but she was quite uh, vocal about it, was making the point, or she was making the argument that they, the Democrats now in power, should do everything they can think of to be sure that no one who ever supported Donald Trump ever gets hired again. That, I mean, that, was a, that, that is a paraphrasing of what she had to say on Twitter and in remarks. The idea that anyone, they, they try to treat Trump in the way as though you would do if you were actually freeing the country of a you know, oppressive tyrant dictator. Um, and so they were trying to make the point, uh, everyone who ever supported him, worked for him, cheered him on, you know, helped him in, uh, in Congress, should be just never employed again. And it seemed so I mean, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, so it was pretty crazy, but it's, it was very uh, vicious in its feel. And you're saying, what you're saying, Fred, is you actually had the sense others on the left had the same goal to try to make sure Trump supporters could never work again. Sure, they're not going to be hired as lobbyists. They're not going to get jobs at Google or Apple or Microsoft. There was an article recently, Debbie, of all these Obama people who are now in the Trump administration and the millions of dollars they made while they were out of government. Most Trump people aren't going to be able to do that because uh, the big tech and the press 
and, and other and the far left, they're going out of their way to stop Trump staff from getting jobs. I can't hire many, but I'm probably going to hire at least four, and I'd like to hire some more. I love that. Fred Flights, I'm so glad you were available to join us today uh, to tell our listeners about the Center for Security Policy. Go to securefreedom.org. You can be very informed every day on national security. Just go to that website, scan the articles, read a few. You'll feel very up to speed. But uh, and the bigger mission of keeping Americans alert to the dangers uh, of all variety, many varieties of dangers facing America through our national security policy. Thanks for writing that great piece about our uh, our first little tiptoe in the water, our first toe in the water with China. <laughs> we'll maybe get better next time. And just thanks for all that you do. Thank you for joining me today. Great to be here. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you. Okay, friends, I'm not joking about that website. Honestly, I get their, their newsletter every day, and I could just talk about their stories on this show. That could be the entire show every day. Very, very good. And this is an organization that has worked for years to help members of Congress, people on Capitol Hill, people in agencies, people in state legislatures, and the average, every, you know, average Joe American understand national security issues in a deep, substantive, clear way real experts, actually experienced people writing about what they've learned in their experiences. So it's just a great organization. And, uh, you know, the Biden um, got off to a bad start with China. And my concern is, as you're hearing um, Fred kind of allude to, was what I'm concerned about is I don't know that the Biden team can, can ever get itself into a position vis-a-vis China and maybe vis-a-vis other countries where they have that same fervor uh, that President Trump had in defending America. You know, he doesn't, ha- I understand Biden's not going to embrace the language America first. He's not going to embrace the, uh, any of the language of the previous administration. But for Biden uh, to be able to say to the world, you know, we're going to stand up for America's interests and we're so, therefore, China, we're going to watch you. We're not going to permit your aggression into, uh, as they're attempting to do, spread. They, they want to be the world's one hegemonic power. That, that is China's goal. So the idea that you hope out of the Biden administration, you'd eventually hear some strength as it relates to China, strength as it relates to restraining their expansionist efforts all over their part of the globe, in Africa and in America. I mean, this is, this is the danger when you have a, an administration like the Biden team not only unclear that they really, whatever words they would use, that they really embrace America as a sovereign, important nation. That's bad enough, but then that's question enough. But then you have the question, of course, uh, the Biden administration apparently deeply compromised uh, with respect in particular to China, and especially after what we all learned, examining the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop, we learn we have a president who may be very, very compromised as it comes to dealing with China because he has been enriched by China in various ways. Okay, one last story, and this is a story not so much, I called it election integrity epiphany. And you know the idea of an epiphany when you just finally go, oh, I finally see it. I wanna tell you what's happening in Texas and it's happening in legislatures around the country where there's a GOP majority. And that is, we all watched the 2020 election cycle. We all watched the variety of ways in which it appeared that massive voter fraud occurred and election fraud occurred. And, you know, I make the distinction between vote fraud, like dead people voting, voter rolls not clean, election fraud, meaning the hacking into voting machines, the, the ability to hack in and change votes. That's electronic election fraud. 
So much of the comfort on the conservative side came, well, you know, we'd like to have that exposed, what happened in 2020, and we'd like to have that, you know, out there and understood better, but, you know, whatever headway we can make on that, we at least can focus on the legislatures in which there's a GOP majority, a conservative majority, and they can put in place new election integrity provisions. This was a mission uh, you know, repeated by many conservative organizations, many activists, pundits around the country. Let's focus in on in these red states and improve election integrity. Well, there are all sorts of things you can do. Election integrity laws, you know, are, have been and amendments to them passed, you know, frequently in many states, and they change things like, you know, um, I mean, the legislature make changes about the dates of mail of uh, dates of early voting and conditions under which mail-in ballots are permitted, and all sorts of of issues that do matter. But after the 2020 election, what many conservatives were trying to do is to get legislatures to include in their election integrity legislation specific provisions dealing with electronic election fraud. And again, electronic election fraud is just the idea, can somebody hack in and change votes while they're stored in the servers? Can somebody hack into voting machines and change votes? And this was, if you listen to my show very often, you know we've had Russ Ramsland, who is the founder of ASOG, A-S-O-G, Allied Security Operations Group here in Dallas. We have had other experts on talking about the overwhelming evidence that there was actually electronic election fraud in 2020, the hacking into voting machines and changing votes. And so, so we're at this point where we, there, were, there was litigation that was brought and to be very clear, the courts that looked at this issue almost entirely, with one exception in Antrim County, Michigan, that one exception I know of, the courts pretty much rejected listening to the cases without ever understanding or examining the evidence. The courts either rejected them because they were uh, too late, they were premature, they lacked standing. There's some procedural basis on which the courts dismiss those cases. And so there has not been the full-on examination of the scope and breadth of electronic election fraud that experts of various kinds believe they can prove in any court in America. But we say, okay, but going forward, it's okay. We're at least going to try to prevent this from happening in the future. And so legislatures looking at these issues, election integrity issues, were bringing on all sorts of great suggestions. Uh, national think tanks, state think tanks, you know, advocates of all kinds were bringing to the legislatures, legislators, you know, a list of things. We would like this, 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 this. You know, things like in Texas, we're talking about reducing the period of time for early voting. You know, we have early, because the longer early voting goes on, there's all sorts of issues that give rise to the potential for fraud. Reducing the uh, number of days you could have early voting having no break between the end of early voting, the last day of early voting, and election day. Not having that big, whatever it used to be, three, four, or five day gap between the end of early voting and the begin and actual election day, during which time all that data related to the early voting was sitting in servers and many believed that they were hacked and votes were changed. So, Dealing with these legislatures, legislators, I've been really active in Texas. I have friends who've been active around the country. The gist of what they're trying to do is to encourage, especially Republican majority legislatures, to include 
in the election integrity legislation provisions that say things like the computers that tabulate votes. You, know, you say you vote on a paper ballot, you fill it in, and you put it into the voting machine. The vote tabulate, the machine tabulates, it counts the votes. So those machines, as one example of a good piece idea for legislation, those vote tabulation machines, computers, should not have Wi-Fi, should not be Wi-Fi accessible. Shouldn't even have, there's no reason they have to have Wi-Fi at all. They are just tabulation machines. Shouldn't be access to Wi-Fi for voter tabulation machines. Shouldn't be access to Wi-Fi for any of the voting machines held at central counting. Should not be, essentially, you're trying to cut off the capacity for any nefarious actor to do a cyber hack, get into the machines, and change the votes. Many people wrote out draft provisions, had ideas, how about this, how about this? There are many other provisions that were written in this period since the 2020 election, people writing saying these things would really help, spelling these things out. Other things had to do with, of course, whether or not the Secretary of State can override the decision made by a legislature about uh, you know, voting deadlines, mail-in ballot deadlines, and, and all the other issues. You know, When you issue mail-in ballots and who's allowed to get an absentee ballot and whether massive mailing out of mail-in ballots is okay. Lots and lots of issues. But my epiphany I want to focus on is it relates to the response I've been getting in Texas and other places about whether or not election integrity legislation should include provisions that directly address the vote hacking, the hacking into computers and changing votes. And I'm telling you that this seems so common sense that I actually anticipated that the Republican majority would just jump on it. Oh yeah, great, great, got it, okay. And they'd be negotiating exactly how it was gonna work and they would have you know, House language and Senate language and they would you know, negotiate what's gonna happen here. And I was realizing, it be, and, and I've been in touch with, I'm not saying any names, I've been in touch with very senior officials and, and, and people in, in think tanks, in uh, legislature, I mean, people who understand what I'm talking about. And I kept being surprised and, and ultimately kind of just, I don't know, dumbfounded, shocked to recognize that all of the advocates who were saying, oh yeah, we're gonna get right on election integrity, that's right, get right on it. None of them were open to any provisions that would actually try to prevent vote hacking, that would try to prevent electronic election fraud. I, I mean, it was staggering. It was like people, you know, uh, you'd have great ideas, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, really great idea. But then the ideas would come out, or committees would put out there, or, and various active, activist groups, various think tanks would put out their top five priorities, top 10 priorities uh, on election integrity. And none of them would mention electronic election fraud. It, it, is like, it is like they got up to a wall and they won't go there. And I started to make the analogy, and I want to make it for you what I've been saying to them, which was, it is like building a house and you're very, very sure about the strength of the foundation, the quality of the windows, the, the, the strength of the, of the uh, beams that, that hold it in place. You know, the roof is gonna be waterproof. The house is gonna be safe. It's gonna be on firm foundations. It's gonna be well-constructed. 
but you don't put a lock on the front door. You say, well, I'm going to hold off and not put a lock on the front door because we've never been robbed. And let me back up and tell you the next iteration, what I've been saying and, and, and advocating in Texas and frankly, in other places, I'm trying to be very careful, but other places I've been advocating. And the, the argument I was making was, okay, you know, you had the left in this country just pillorying the idea that there was anything to electronic election fraud, the vote hacking into the computers. Left-wing outlets, news outlets, left-wing leaders, you know, everybody in the American left was working night and day to characterize anyone who even believed in electronic election fraud, anyone who even, you know, floated the idea was kind of a tinfoil hat nut. And you know, we're not going to listen to them. These are the same people that, you know, believe the earth is flat or they believe, you know, that uh, the moon, you know, the trip to the moon didn't happen. You know, the astronauts on the moon didn't happen. I mean, they tried to categorize anyone concerned about electronic election fraud as tinfoil hat. So I went back and I said, okay, fine. Don't you, no one is asking you, legislators, to agree that electronic election fraud happened in 2020. Okay, fine. Say you don't buy it or you're unconvinced. You haven't seen enough evidence. Fine. You're at the point, you're building the house and you don't wait to find out if you are going to have break-ins before you decide to put a lock on the door. And in, as it applies in the election context, we live in 2021. We live in the era where we saw massive hacking and undetected for months on end in the solar winds huge debacle in Washington and all over the country, massive hacking, massive information available and stolen out of federal agencies, a solar winds hacking, massive. It was almost a year before someone discovered it. Same thing happened with Capital One. Same thing has happened with countless organizations having to put out notice, hey, customer, so sorry, turns out we were hacked. So hacking is well known as a threat to every entity in America. Hacking is like, it's like understanding that you have to have a, a door lock or someone might hack in. Hacking is common, it's widespread, it's dangerous. So if you're a legislator and you're sitting there thinking, you know, I'm gonna do a really great job on election integrity legislation, fine if you don't think there was any electronic election fraud in 2020, fine. Throw that issue away. Why wouldn't you, in the era of massive hacking and everyone aware of the capacity to hack into computers, why wouldn't you write protections into your election law as a preemptive measure? Not because you think it has happened. You can even stand up and make a speech that you're not one of those silly tinfoil hat people, but you're just putting this in because you know hacking does happen in other contexts in life. And among the most precious things we should be protecting in America are the votes of the individual citizens sitting there in computers waiting to be counted. And so we're going to protect against hacking. That seems, to me, it would seem as though anyone earnestly concerned about election integrity would say, this is great. What a, oh, yeah, of course I'll do it. I couldn't get them to budge. You can't get anyone to take seriously the suggestion that electronic hacking, hacking into voting machines, should be preemptively dealt with in election integrity legislation in 2021. And, and it's not even like they don't even answer, they don't even offer an answer back. They don't even say, 
well, it's probably not necessary, or I don't think we're going to go there, or that's too complicated. They just don't do it. They go, thanks for the input. Mm -hmm, thank you. And nothing happens. The two big bills pending in Texas will not address this issue. So here's my epiphany, combined with some information that came to my attention in the last 24 hours. There is a segment within the overarching conservative side in our country, the overarching conservative side that says that because Donald Trump spent so much time pillorying, pillorying, attacking the outcome of the election in 2020, because he planted the seed in the minds of American people that they, that the election was stolen. And that, so, so you have, for example, all the information Sidney Powell tried to bring forward. And by the way, I think she's bringing more, but anyway, her whole Kraken, you know, Kraken, you know, release the Kraken. And then you had that effort get stymied every step of the way. Couldn't get it out. Couldn't get a court to listen to it. But there is an effort among very highly placed powerful people on the conservative side who view the idea that if states write into their election integrity laws provisions that directly address electronic fraud, that attempt to prevent it, that say, we're going to be sure there's no Wi-Fi connection to our you know, co voter computation machines. There's no Wi-Fi connection to the voters, the, the, the voting machines sitting in, in central, uh, central tabulations where they you know, pile up all the votes and count them all, central counting. There is a, there is a movement, there is a, a small group who think that the idea that if legislatures outlaw or even address in legislation that we have to prevent electronic hacking, that the very discussion about that, the inclusion of that issue in legislation will give energy, renewed energy and validation to Trump's accusations about the 2020 elections and will also re-embolden, reinvigorate the Trump supporters who have been calling for a full examination of the data arising out of the 2020 election cycle. The argument of these people, and I'm telling you, now the left will always say this, the last thing any leftist, any Democrat wants is really strong election integrity legislation. They fight it at every level, every issue. Even when you try to have bills saying, we're gonna remove dead voters, leftists will oppose that for, you know, from the voter rolls. Leftists will oppose that. But the conservative side, allegedly caring the most about integrity and honest elections and saying they're doing these bills to try to shore up the election process, they are being pushed, arm twisted by a cabal, a small group of people who see themselves as the leaders of the conservative movement who are being told, don't you dare include in election integrity legislation, anything that touches on the voting machines, anything that touches on the potential for a hack into the voting machines, anything that protects against future election fraud in the form of electronic election fraud. There's pressure on legislators, think tanks in this country, other organizations involved in this process, pressure on them to say, 
Don't even think about it because A, you're going to validate Trump's complaints about the 2020 elections. B, you're going to motivate and invigorate his supporters to be further demanding and further uh, insisting upon uh, a thorough investigation of election fraud. And we want to shut that down. And I'm telling you that as I was hearing this whole story last night, and then I'm thinking about today, how impossibly hard it's been to penetrate in, in Texas and other places to penetrate the legislators, the people writing the laws to say, why don't you write in preemptive provisions saying, no, uh, you know, we're going to block Wi-Fi access to voter tabulation computers, block Wi-Fi access to voting machines holding voting data. Why? I mean, and as I said, as I went along, I kept thinking, I can't understand why there isn't just this, oh my gosh, of course, answer, but it's just the opposite. It is a, it's just, it's not even explanations up, or just stone cold silence. Nope, just, just, oh, okay, thank you very much for your opinion. And, and not doing it. And I've heard from, from pretty, pretty highly placed people that there is a commitment among many GOP majority legislatures, we're not touching, we're not going to touch legislatively the voting machine hacking issue in our legislation. We're just leaving it alone. There's pressure to do that from powers on high, people who want Trump out of the process, want him out of the whole American conversation about election integrity. They want to embarrass him. They want to humiliate him. They want him to end up looking silly for having pushed electronic elect, uh, election into, um, you know, hacking. They want to make him look foolish. They want to just vilify and tinfoil hat anyone who's talked about it. And it is not because they don't think it's possible that that kind of fraud occurred. It's not because they would deny that it occurred and certainly not because they think it could never happen. It's because any signal from serious legislatures in this country that this is a problem we should address is going to help, in their view, help resurrect the Donald Trump. And he, he doesn't need their power, actually, but to help you know, keep him in place as a leader on the conservative side, keep his followers, you know, supportive of him, his supporters, um, agitating about the 2020 election. It is an effort. And it, what it boils down to is these people who are putting pressure on state Republican parties, state legislatures are more committed to being sure they have wiped Donald Trump and his supporters off the face of the political planet They'd rather do that and, con and continue the risk of having compromised federal elections. They won't support the idea of getting any kind of voting machine language into this legislation, even though they're, fully, they're at least fully aware that hacking could occur because they know about SolarWinds, Capital One, and hundreds and probably thousands of other massive hacks. They know it could happen but they can't get behind it because it just might help Donald Trump, I don't know, choose to run again in 2024, at least get more and more support for what he's doing, trying to, you know, he's uh, doing a lot of things, trying to stay active politically, resurrect or creating apparently his own new social media platform. But I, I called this segment the, an epiphany because after this conversation I had last night and then was thinking about it today, and talking to a few more people, I realized 
it kind of explains why I cannot make headway in the Texas legislature or elsewhere in getting these people to get on board with including in election integrity legislation clear, strong provisions that say that the voting tabulation machines and the servers sitting in central counting, servers holding vote, vote totals and vote data from early voting should be severed completely from possible hacking, possible internet access. Doing that, including something like that, is about the moral equivalent of building a house and putting that lock on the door, installing a strong lock on the front door before you ever get robbed. It is not rock and science. It is not extreme. It is not out there. It is basic common sense. And there had to be a reason, the more I thought about it, that I could not make headway and I think in getting them to include those issues, those provisions. And I think that's the answer. I think there are people on our own side who, now I will say, there are people who are saying, well, you know, maybe some of the Republicans are even in on all of this electronic vote manipulation. Maybe Republicans and Democrats and a whole bunch of other people all in on it and everybody in on it does not want to have legislation that stops them from continuing to use it. I don't know if that's true. It could be true. All I know is it is outrageous that after the 2020 elections and everything the American people know, we cannot get legislatures in red states at least to include in election integrity legislation, clear, specific, simple language that says the vote tabulation computers and the voting machines holding data cannot have internet access, cannot be accessed by the internet. It's not rocket science, but they won't do it. There had to be a reason. I'm finally realizing why, as I go back and forth and send my bullet point list and they send back, they're not going to do it. This was the final word I actually got um, I'm not going to agree it's final. I've had that, heard that statement made by a legislator. They're, they're not going to do it. They're just going to listen to all of the complaints and listen to all the concerns, and they're not going to touch the issue because the powers that be, powers far more powerful than I am, are trying to tell them don't do it. That, my very fine friends, is my epiphany and what I'm so deeply concerned about in this election cycle. I close the show every day. I, at the end of every show, I try to tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. And so we start our day today. Um, I, there we go. Free press and Google's monopoly. A federal judge, Lawrence Silberman, demonstrates the power of one. We were talking about that the other day, power of one, in a dissenting opinion. One party control of the press and media is a threat to a viable democracy. New York Times and Washington Post are virtually Democrat Party broadsheets urges the Supreme Court to revisit the ruling that shielded media from libel defamation liability. Silverman's opinion on Democrat one-party control was issued roughly coincident with the release of a previously undisclosed documents, with release of previously undisclosed documents establishing Obama administration FTC support for Google monopoly after Google helped Obama secure re-election. You have to read the piece. It's on our website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage, under show, drop down, list of links. You can read the Obama connection to all this. Americans are relearning their exceptional heritage. Freedom of speech is the legal foundation of a free country, but it is forever at risk from those who crave power over others. And that, my friends, is a true story. And on election integrity epiphany, why it matters to you. Red state legislatures are writing election integrity legislation but 
refusing to address electronic election fraud, i.e. hacking of voting machines to flip votes. Why? The, their failure to act makes no sense. Is there a GOP ruling donor class mission to downplay election fraud and to silence talk of hacking voting machines so the ruling class can permanently marginalize Trump and convince his voters he was wrong about the election? Consider, or oh, I didn't even tell you this part, consider prominent GOP people who support Trump haters. Paul Ryan committed to a fundraiser for Liz Cheney, a clear Trump hater. Carl Rove just committed to a fundraiser for Adam Kinzinger, one of the few Republicans who voted against Trump and the impeachment thing, a clear hate Trumper. The RNC, the entire Republican National Committee, rarely fought for Trump while he was president. This talk of electronic election fraud extends, any talk of, Trump, of electronic election fraud extends Trump's viability. So the left is saying, or the powers on the right are saying, it shall not be discussed. And if that means the American people must accept rigged future elections, as far as this ruling class cabal is concerned, so be it. Refusing to address electronic election fraud in lawmaking does not make it go away. Whose side are the legislatures on, the people or the ruling class? And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Tune in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can